This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by Thomas Merton. One who is content with what he has and who accepts the fact that he inevitably misses very much in life is far better off than one who has much more but who worries about all that he may be missing. We cannot master everything, taste everything, understand everything, drain every experience to its last dregs. But if we have the courage to let almost everything else go, we will probably be able to retain the one thing necessary for us whatever it may be. If we are too eager to have everything, we will almost certainly miss even the one thing we need. Happiness consists in finding out precisely what the one thing necessary may be in our lives and in gladly relinquishing all the rest. A reading of scriptures from Exodus 16, verses 2 through 15. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them, whether they follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day... When they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they can gather on their own in other ways. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, 
that was on the surface of the wilderness. It was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And at about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. As a child, going to church made a certain impression on me. The church we attended sort of a classic large sanctuary with big stained glass windows and a large pipe organ at the front, which was always playing ominously as we entered. The sanctuary was long and it had lots of pews and uh, it always seemed like a long walk to the front, you know, and if you didn't arrive early, often the back seats were taken. I don't know why the back always seemed to fill up first, but it did. And as you walked and got closer to the front, the closer you got to the large pulpit that was at the center in front of the sanctuary where our large pastor wore a solemn black robe and would say solemn things like, Dearly beloved, and thus saith the Lord. Church to me as a child seemed like another world, a world totally disconnected from and unrelated to the rest of my life. In such a setting and seen from a child's perspective, it was easy to imagine that the spiritual life mostly had nothing to do with the actual lives people were living. 
If you had struggles in your marriage, well, keep that at home. Our business here is whether or not you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Laid off from work? Well, good luck. And sorry to hear it, but you do know that Jesus died for you, right? Believing the right things inwardly seemed to take precedence over what might have been happening outwardly in one's life circumstances. Physical bread might be nice to eat, but it was most important that we were fed spiritually. So even if not stated explicitly in this way, there seemed to be an assumption that the spiritual was divorced from the material, the sacred separated from the mundane, the holy from the everyday. Yet when we explore the biblical text, such as our passages that were read today, you begin to wonder if such a division is warranted. We have a story in Exodus that speaks to physical hunger. Israel's escaped from life in Egypt. We've been talking about this over the last number of weeks. And they quickly find that life in the wilderness is not so easy. The terrain is difficult, water is scarce, and food perhaps even scarcer. In this setting, any talk of spirituality seems kind of secondary. What's for dinner seems a more pressing question. And if there will be dinner... And so we have a story in this holy book, this foundational text of spiritual insight and revelation, a story about the mundane, about something as everyday as bread. That hardly seems spiritual. But then here in this second book of the Hebrew Bible, we're quickly dispelled of any illusion that the spiritual and the mundane were ever meant to be separated. Walter Brueggemann writes of the deep materiality of our faith. I like that phrase, the deep materiality of our faith. A materiality that knows all along that our bodies count decisively. And so while our religious practices often point us to heaven or to the invisible spiritual things, we can find great spiritual meaning in everyday stuff, like the food that we eat. And Brueggemann notes that the source of our food has more significance than we might imagine. But I think we know this, right? If there's a meal that you make based primarily on the stuff you grew in your own garden, right, that feels like a different kind of meal than something that you open from a package and throw in the microwave. Or if you have a friend who's opening a restaurant and you go there and celebrate with them, you know this meal was crafted with care, right? That meal has a certain significance. Or somebody brings you a meal during a stretch when that's an appropriate gesture. There's a richness to that. What happens to our bodies, Brueggemann asks? Well, on the one hand, they take in food, right? We must eat, and the food sustains our lives, and that food, that food is transferred into energy, into work, into care. And he says, the one who provides the food we eat governs the loyalties that we embrace. In other words, yes, there was bread in Egypt, but that bread came at a price. Right? They were subjected to Pharaoh, and they were enslaved. God invites Israel into the desert to discover that, to discover that there's an alternative bread 
to the bread of empire. A bread that happens to a community willing to stay together in freedom and willing to trust God in the midst of seeming lack. All of which makes our parable in Matthew 20 today seem appropriate. We're often told that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meaning. Does that phrase sound familiar? Probably to many of us. And so here we have a parable about workers in a vineyard. So we're immediately with this idea of what a parable is, thinking, well, these workers must stand for something, this vineyard must stand for something, must be symbolic for something. And some of these workers are hired early in the morning, some are hired at the very end of the day, at the so-called 11th hour. But all are paid the same. And the landowner, who we might presume represents God, shows his generosity in paying everybody the same thing showing that uh, with God, nothing is earned, right? And everything is given. That all are equal when it comes to grace. No one has a leg up. And so the story, we presume, set in the earthly world of work and employment and wages is really about the spiritual or heavenly reality of grace and the generosity of God to give it to us. Does that sound like a familiar reading of the parable? Or we often hear it in the context of, let's say, somebody is raised in the church and has faith from a very early age, right? And then somebody comes to faith, let's say, at deathbed conversion. And yet God gives the same gracious welcome and reward to each. Or often it's interpreted as uh, the Israelites representing the earliest workers hired, right? And so they were the people of God early on, But then later, Gentiles and the nations are invited into relationship and community with God. And so we often see these early workers who complain as representing the Jews that are kind of like, hey, we've been here the whole time, and what are we? And so we we read it as God gives his grace across lines. And it's a wonderful story when it's read that way. I also think it might be wrong. Or at least I think there's another reading that does more justice to the story that Jesus is trying to tell. Sometimes we read into stories more than perhaps is meant to be read. And sometimes a story about vines and grapes and workers really is a story about vines and grapes and workers. Verse 1 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So our context here is employment, and it doesn't take a lot of exegetical or historical background to figure that out. Yet what prevents us from staying in this world of the story? Why are we so quick to assume this is an allegory for how God treats everyone the same? Why are we more comfortable with a story about grace than a story about wages? Well, what do we know from this story? What is Jesus telling us? We know that we have a landowner who owns a vineyard. It's presumably around the time of the harvest, given the number of workers that he needs to hire. And a landowner who owns a vineyard like this is likely a wealthy person 
William Herzog, who I'm going to lean on heavily for this reading of the parable this morning, notes that vineyards in this area were often owned by elites. Often owned by elites because they produce a crop that, be, that can be converted into a luxury item which can be monetized and then exported. Further, you had to have a certain amount of wealth because having a vineyard was a patient process. The first four years of having a vineyard was kind of done without any reward, right? Because it took a while for those vines to grow, for those grapes to be appropriately uh, harvestable and then converted into the process of making wine. So you had to have a certain amount of capital to invest in that kind of a thing because it still costs you money for workers to tend to the vines even though you're not seeing any dividends at the outset. So we're likely talking about uh, a fairly wealthy landowner here. But at least this landowner is a good guy, right? After all, he pays them well, as we understand it, and he cites his own generosity at the end of the story. At least that's what our initial impulse tells us, right? Because we've been trained to identify this landowner with God. But let's just put that on pause for a moment and just assume that the landowner is simply a landowner in this story, nothing more. The parable says that he agrees with the laborers for the usual daily wage. And then he goes back at various hours to hire more workers. And when he goes back, I think we read he goes back at least four times, there's always more workers ready to be hired. Well, what does that tell us about the situation? That there's always people ready to work. It tells us that work was hard to come by and that unemployment is up. And who is the advantage with in such a situation? The employer. Right? If they'll do anything just to work, then he's in the advantageous position. And Herzog notes that his successive trips to the Agora or the marketplace serve another purpose by reinforcing the power that he has. On the first trip, he apparently bargains with them, right? It says he agrees with them for the usual daily wage. But this seems more like a take-it-or-leave-it kind of proposition than true bargaining. Because if he can go to this marketplace an hour before sundown and still find people ready to work, it's clear that the workers have no bargaining power. And he even says to these later workers, I'll pay you whatever, whatever is right. So these workers are in such a disadvantaged position that they're willing to just go on faith. I'll pay you whatever's right, he says. And they don't know what that's going to be. And yet they're still willing to go and work. Are you starting to get the picture that Jesus perhaps might be trying to paint in this parable? We're still resistant to this reading. We still can't get it out of our head that in the end the landowner turns out to be more generous than anyone could have predicted. But is he? Is he? Offering them uh, work without a wage agreement for only a day at a time? Well, that was a practice that uh, the Roman senator and historian Cato the Elder said was very commonplace among Roman landowners. And if you only hire them for a day at a time, or part of a day, without any promise of future employment, it continues to keep those workers in a disadvantaged position because they can't plan ahead. They're kind of desperate for whatever they can get, and you're always in the advantaged position as the employer. 
So they're hired at various hours of the day. And verse 8 says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager... So we know he has a manager, which again highlights the fact that this is a pretty large operation, multiple levels of employment, pretty wealthy person. He says to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with those hired last, and then going to the first. And we read that when those hired about five o'clock came, in other words, those hired at the very end of the day, each of them received the usual daily wage. Well, how much was that daily wage? Well, the Greek actually doesn't say daily wage. It says a denarius. So it's an interpretive uh, or translation decision to say the usual daily wage. It was a denarius. Well, is a denarius a good or generous or sustainable wage? Good question. Many scholars agree that this was at best a subsistence level wage. In other words, barely enough for a single person to live on, let alone a family. And especially for workers who are day laborers, and they're not going to have work every day, because their work is coming mostly to planting time and the harvest, and in between, they're kind of trying to figure things out, often reduced to begging. And so perhaps this denarius is not as generous as we might think. Verse 10 says, Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more. Right? Because they saw what these other people were paid. But each of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We've been out working all day. Are you really going to treat us this way? But in the usual reading of the paragraph, we say, How dare these guys complain, right? This guy just decided to be generous to these people who worked at the end of the day, and that's his prerogative. And so we assume, and we side with the landowner, assuming he's being generous and representing God and God's generosity. But as Jesus tells this parable, who do you imagine his audience might identify with in this story? I think that's helpful for us to think about, right? Who is Jesus talking to? Jesus often spoke to crowds who were poor who were peasants, and they would identify with the plight and the situation of these, land, of these day laborers, right? This would not be an unfamiliar scene to them. And they would be right there with those workers in this story. So why do the workers complain? Well, the landowner has aimed a deliberate insult at them by reversing the order of payment so that the last hired receive a wage equal to that of the first hired, he has shamed them. And he has shamed their labor. Their labor, their physical work of their hands, which is the last resource they have available to them. He has shamed them. We're starting to wonder about the point of the parable, aren't we? If it isn't about grace and heaven and all of that, why tell such a story? It doesn't sound like the Jesus we learned about in Sunday school. Well, Jesus portrays the members of the lowest social class having the audacity to raise their voices in protest. That would be a powerful story for his audience to hear. There's more to come. The landowner is shrewd, right? He denies their charge. 
that he's not being generous. And then he picks out their leader and makes an example of him. It says in verse 13, he replied to one of them. So he takes one aside, sort of divides them up. He says to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the daily wage or for the denarius? Now, it's helpful to know that the term here for friend in the Greek is the word heter, which has the illusion of being respectful, but actually reinforces their different social stations. If he had been, dressing, um, if he had been addressing an equal, he would have used the Greek word phile. Phile. And so the allusion to the pretense of bargaining by these workers is now used against them. And then he says, am I, now, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Seems a legitimate question, right? But it's also helpful to remember that in this era, in the first century, in ancient times, often there were peasant farmers who owned historic land that were forced to sell that land because they were indebted and couldn't pay taxes, took on loans during lean times, and that land was taken over by the wealthy and annexed and converted into vineyards and so forth. And so the fact that he says, am I not allowed to do what I please with what belongs to me might be rubbing salt in their wounds because now they're working the fields that they used to own for me your pay. And of course, in the Torah, it was understood that all the land belongs ultimately to God, right? The land is Yahweh's, and it is Yahweh's graciousness that allows the people to live on the land, and God has set it up so that the large accumulation by the few at the expense of the many would never happen. And that was something called the debt code. And so that every jubilee year, which was every 50 years, the land would revert back to its original ownership if for any reason it had been sold. And all debts would be canceled every seventh year. And so when he says, Does, am I not allowed to do what I please but belongs to me? That could almost be heard as blasphemous to the ancient Jewish listener. God had given the land to be a blessing for an abundance that was to be shared by all. And this leaves the final question the landowner asks, only bitterly ironic. Or are you envious because I am generous? The victims of a system are now blamed for the injustices that that system expresses. Jesus exposes the unjust economics of empire because how we get our bread and from whom matters. This is a parable that pulls back the veil on reality. It helps us see the world as it is in order that we might dream of a world that might be. In the final speech to a single laborer, the landowners attempted to divide the workers against themselves and make them feel helpless before the entirety of this unjust system. And in exposing it, Jesus reminds his audience that the landowners and the wealthy are dependent on them and their work for their wealth, and that their true power is not in being divided, but by acting in solidarity with each other. Jesus does not divide the spiritual from the material. He reminds us that everything is spiritual. Every aspect of our lives matters to God. One of the first things Jesus did in his ministry was go out into the wilderness to fast. 
And we read in the text that at the end of those 40 days, he was hungry. And then he's offered bread, right? But he knows that it matters where you get your bread from, and he refuses the bread of the devil. He taught his followers to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. He broke bread with day laborers, with peasants, and with prostitutes, and with each piece shared with a fellow flesh and blood human being. He reminds us that God cares about us, and God cares about every aspect of our lives. If you're struggling because of a broken relationship, that matters to God. If you're unable to pay the rent because minimum wage in this country is not a living wage, that matters to God. If you're feeling stressed out and overwhelmed because of the demands of life, of family, of work, of bills, of everything, that matters to God. When you feel like you're in the wilderness and aren't sure which direction to go or whether you're going to make it, that matters to God. And when we choose to work for a world where bread is shared abundantly, where economics work in favor of everyone, when we sit and listen to someone who is hurting, when we share a meal with someone who is hungry, when we hold hands with someone who is crying, when we call for health care for every person, when we care for the immigrants and the refugees among us and advocate for their legal status, when we say to City Hall and to the wealthy in our community that we need affordable housing, when we speak out loudly that $7.50 an hour is not a living wage, when we do all of this and more, we know that we're in danger of becoming very spiritual people. The kind of people Jesus thought just might change the world. Amen. Namaste.
you are invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.